Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to our podcast, Life After the Letters. I'm Amelie. And I'm Suba. We're friends that met whilst working our first shifts as junior doctors. And we're here to talk about the stories and challenges that we face every day. This is a reunion of sorts. Amelie and I met Jamie during our first year as doctors. He's a PA and has been for the best part of the last year. Before I continue, can I just say that Jamie was known affectionately by all of the F1s as that really good PA essentially the king of PAs. Um, But before becoming a physician's associate, Jamie worked as a senior radiographer at the Cath Labs for about four years. He has a Bachelor of Science in Diagnostic Radiography, Master's in Physician's Associate Studies. He's currently working in malignant haematology at Guy's Hospital alongside the inpatient ward team. So, hello everyone. Hello team. So, hey, Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so it's so exciting to have Jamie here with us today. Um, so, Subra and I, we put out a thing on our Instagrams to say, what sort of topics should we bring up? And then Jamie replied saying, you need to talk about physician associates. And then as soon as he said that, actually, a lot of my doctor friends started chiming in to my <laughs> inbox. And actually, a lot of misconceptions about what physicians associates are even came up then. And the difference that I saw between those who knew about, who worked with physician associates versus those who had never worked with them, the difference in thought was astounding. But we've talked about that, haven't we, Jamie, we on have, our way just here? just a little bit. So, Jamie, do you mind just starting and telling us why you decided to become a physician's associate in the first place and what your journey looked like? Yeah, sure. So I was working as a radiographer in the cath labs for about three or four years, and one of my cardiology registrars suggested to me, oh, perhaps you would want to go to medical school or think about going into medicine Um, and it's something I toyed with for a few years but never Mm. really had much of an interest in Um, so I started looking around um, didn't really feel that I wanted to go to medical school for another five years (laughs) do F1 F2 working jobs that I didn't want to work in necessarily you kind of already done yeah yeah exactly Mm. like you know um, so then someone said oh have you heard about this physician assistant as it was called when I was about to reply Um, and I even I was like, no, these people just write discharge letters and that's not really something I want yeah. to do with the rest of my life. Mm. Um, and I kind of worked around and they said, actually, this job actually is expanding quite well. Um, and so on a whim, I went and met a PA for a day, saw what they did. 
They worked alongside the juniors. Where was that PA? Um, they were working in London. At this okay. time, they were all working in London. There was yeah. nothing really outside of London. Birmingham, Aberdeen, but other than that, nothing else. Oh, Aberdeen, um, okay. Yeah, so they've been running a programme for a while. You know when you're um, like, I'm going to miss that train fare. <laughs> <laughs> That's not happening. <laughs> Literally. Um, so, yeah, I met up with them and just chatted with them online, met up with them at work, saw what they did, and was like, okay, I can get on board with this. Um, so I applied to a programme out in Essex. Uh, and it was the first time they were running the PA program. I was really happy that I was successful in the program. Yeah. And I started there in 2015. Yeah. So you were living in Essex at the time and working in Essex. Yep. I was I was working in Essex in as a, in a hospital as a radiographer. Oh, the same um, hospital. Same Hold hospital. On. Did Batman. you not know this? Of course I did because Jamie, when you had Jamie around, Literally. you used to get all your scans done ASAP. Mate, having Jamie around was like a fast track ticket at Thor Park. <laughs> <laughs> You'd walk in with Jamie on your arm and literally doors are opening, things are just getting done. People you're are like, smiling. Yeah, you're like, jobs are all done by about 9.15, all right. Home time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was quite handy actually because I knew the hospital setting, I knew yeah. everything, like, where everything was, where the lab was, the lab yeah. staff, the imaging staff, so that was quite handy. And that's um, all the rubbish that you just need to know straight away to even be successful in your job or to get your job done yeah. quickly. Can I ask and bring it right back to before you became a radiographer, what led you into that field in the first place? What were you just, what were you thinking when you were in school about what you wanted to be when you when you grow up? Uh, so, I mean, I was studying um, <coughs> A level biology, chemistry, German, and psychology. Mm. Bit of a random combination. I quite like German, and actually, I was wanting to get out there study German at school and be a translator. Can we throw in, by the way, that Jamie is fully fluent in German? Are you? A new ambition. <laughs> just a little bit. Guten Tag. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yes. Good German. Das hast du Geburtstag. What's that? When's your birthday? <laughs> All I can well say, well well you said it in the most like, <laughs> I just had to put it in there. Not a when's your birthday kind of tone of voice. <laughs> so literally just random in there. Good, good, good. At least I understood you. That's thank the you, thank you, thank you. Um, and danke, danke. I'll they, stop. Please, please. Uh, <laughs> uh, they know, they, uh, my parents and my friends are kind of like, what are you going to do with German? Like, it's not really a career. And I applied for some work experience and basically got put into a hospital for a week and stumbled across a radiographer and was like, oh, this looks like an interesting mm. job. Uh, I was on the radiotherapy side, actually, to begin with. And I spent one day with a diagnostic radiographer. So x-ray, CT scans, MRIs. And I was like, yeah, this looks like a really cool job. It's physics, which I quite enjoy. It's patient care. It's mm. like x-rays, which are cool pictures. This is what I want to do. And you were telling me that there was obviously the diagnostic course and then the therapeutic course. Yeah. Well, so how comes you went into a diagnostic at that age? So um, for me, I think it was a trauma aspect of it. So the okay. radiotherapy radiographers, they obviously treat cancer radiotherapy. They do planning CTs for cancer treatment. Mm. Um, and I quite enjoy and diagnostic radiographers. They seem to work out of A&E, trauma, theatre, resource calls, that kind of thing. And I quite like the buzz of the yeah. adrenaline of. You yeah. wanted to be on a TV show, basically. Basically. I wanted to be on St. George's, you know, and just be up there in 24 hours in A&E taking that vital CT scan. Um, so yeah, I picked that route. Sweet, sweet. And then, so that went took you through university. And did you feel like this is what you wanted to do? Um, or when did questions start popping into your head about... So I think about six months after I qualified, obviously general radiographers, we were in the main department, we're rotating around trauma theatre you know, x-rays, recess calls. And I kind of thought this is, this is good, but I want something more. And then a cath lab job came up mm. um, as a permanent radiographer in the cath labs. And I spent some time as a student there. Didn't really know much about what the radiographers did other mm. than, you know, control the machine. Um, and so I went over for a week and just thought there was so much more involved with the team that, you know, you had to be part of the nursing staff, part of the physiology staff, the mm. consultants relied on you to get good images. 
and actually you're more hands-on and that's when i was like okay these team these radio officers do more yeah um you know they're involved in the cardiac arrest management they have to know to rhythm recognize on ecgs and that's something I was like that's really interesting i want to do that so that's the point in which you mentioned you were speaking to one of your registrars who I think sounds like he noticed that interest you were taking. Yeah, yeah. So they would like get me to hang out on call with them. If we yeah. on call, that come in, do the ward rounds with us, like see what's going on. Did that oh, for about yeah. six months. And that's when they were like, have you thought about medical school? Because it sounds like in your role as a sort of radiographer in the cath labs, obviously you can make it as strict or as flexible as, as you want to at the end of the day. And I think that's true of any job role. Mm. And it sounds like you had a very sort of open approach to it where you were sort of like even when you're talking about it saying how there's so many aspects to the job that if you're interested in you can dive into yeah and my manager was were. really supportive she was like okay you want to you know learn to scrub up and be a scrub nurse I'm, yeah let's go and the nurse and stuff like yeah we need more people to help out yeah and the consultants are like okay you want to be involved with like rhythm recognition the physiologist like yeah we'll teach you this is how you do an ecg this is how you interpret it these are the basic rhythms um and they're really supportive and I was like, this is really cool. This is what I want to do. And it's interesting you say that, actually, because there is definitely like a gap for people to cross special specialise. And actually, when Super and I, even though we were laughing about the fact that you could take you into um, the x-ray department and get our scans done ASAP, actually to have someone who can like traverse different areas is very important in a hospital. Yeah. And actually, it just makes things a lot more efficient and effective. And I'm sure we'll talk about like the continuity of care that physicians associates provide. But it's great for the service, essentially. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think also um, touching on continuity of care, I know we'll come back to talk about it, but whilst we're on the topic, um, whilst a lot of us doctors will be rotating every four months, it's sometimes that can be a bit detrimental to building all your relationships in the hospital. And that's 90% of your job, isn't it? It's um, human relationships and having connections with people and being able to rock up and someone be like, oh yeah, it's you from this department. And you know, and that they rely, they, they can trust on. Yeah, and it's a familiar face. Saying. They know what they're getting from you. If you say it's urgent, it means urgent. If exactly. you say it can be done tomorrow, they know it can wait till tomorrow. Exactly. So, and then they get to trust you. So much of that is reliant on your relationships. And obviously if you're moving every four months, you make them and you break them and you just keep on rolling. <laughs> Um, but let's come back to talking about the whole med school dilemma. Because I remember we spoke about this when yeah, you yeah, were yeah. a physician associate student. And I was we still on the Narin. Yeah. And I remember talking to you because you had so much interest in like um, in medicine. And, you know, it was so it was so transparent and you were so keen and so eager to learn. And like my favorite student today. <laughs> um, and it was just so like encouraged, like so nice. And it was just so easy to be like, oh, but have you thought about med school? Yeah, and like, and have you thought about being a doctor? I, th I think every PA has thought about medical school at some point and you have to weigh up the pros and cons. Um, and for me, medical school is going to be probably five years. If I could get into a graduate program, another four years of, you know, medical training. Um, it's, you know, the, so much cha money. the changing in funding money now as well, well which is a yeah. problem. Um, and then you have to complete F1, F2. And I realized I'm not the kind of person that would want to do a job that I didn't have my heart in for four months. Obviously, you would you would do your best because, you know, you've got patients there. But I wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah. And the thought of being, you know, not enjoying a job for two years did not appeal to me. Um, whereas the PA, you can apply to a speciality you want to work in directly yeah. from graduation. And you don't get that luxury in, in medicine, even, I would say, almost depending on your specialty, but sometimes even four, five years down the line after you graduate. Mm -hmm. Um, which, yeah, sucks sometimes if you're yeah. really clear on what you want to do. Um, okay, so then let's talk about 
being a physician, like, you know, starting your studies as a physician's associate. Because also, I feel like Jamie's not touched on this, but I, and I don't know if I'm mistaken, but I feel like you're a big, like a, a kingpin in like... I wouldn't say that. I, I mean, I'm, in I'm, like the, in like even the, the setup of the studies, because I feel like they were consulting you a lot on sort of feedback on how to... So, I, yeah, so I, I was trying to be quite proactive in the PA role, because at the time when I first started, there was a lot of like negativity around the role. Um, it still is, isn't there? Yeah, it's yeah. a massive problem at the moment, with negativity, um, especially when the name changed um yeah from physician assistant to physician associate there's lots of problems around that and you know lots of question why are we doing this there's a lot of confusion um, around what the roles yeah. are um, and a lot of people who've not worked with them are like well what do they contribute yeah, because the physician assistant role still is around and i yeah. probably guys have probably worked with them before yeah. um so uh, can you tell us what the negativity um, so, so the name change was that you're moving from physician assistant to physician associate and you're trying to make yourself more independent and you're trying to make yourself more like a medical practitioner who doesn't need to be with a doctor. And the whole idea of the PA role is that you work in direct consultation with the consultant. You're supervised by them and you have direct access to the consultant for questioning and problems. Um, and a lot of doctors felt that when we changed the name that we were trying to move away from that structure and that we were trying to be independent and we we're trying <laughs> to be on our own and, be, you know, doc kind of like, rogue doctors yeah literally yeah. literally people were very concerned about that and uh, you know rightly so you know probably the publicity wasn't out there yet mm -hmm. when i first joined instagram and twitter there was hardly anyone yeah. out there on social media that was pa publicizing there's a few little you know things but nothing major and so i just tried to put out the message of this is yeah. what i'm doing this is my training pathway this is what i do and this more importantly this is what i don't do currently and this yeah. is why i don't do it should we clarify um can i ask a question very quickly so America obviously bought out PAs initially, so that was in the 1960s. Yeah. And then in the what? UK. What? Yeah. The 1960s. And I'm really, I'm really pretty impressed that you know that. It's yeah. Just, not all, it, even all the PAs don't know that. But so. I, and I'll tell you why I know it in a little bit. But basically, yeah, um, the role came out in America in the 60s, and then it started developing in the UK, like in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's when you had a big influx of PAs. I think in like 2012, there must have been like. Oh, I can't even remember how many. I think there was only five training programs. So it was the time. five, then it dropped to three, yeah, and then it dropped back up to five. And yeah, so what was I going to say? So was there a lot of learning from America on the role, and were they quite open about what they did? So yeah, so the physician assistants actually about two thousand three, some GP practices started realizing they were struggling to recruit permanent staff, and they um, some of the GPs had gone to America and had worked with PAs, and was actually these people could really like bolster our team mm. uh, and brought some over some american pas to the uk and so how would they work within the general practice system so i mean they start off with extended consultation time so usually around 20 minutes or so because they need to get used to consulting i think similar to what mm. fys and gp practice mm. would do mm. um and then they would you know depending on the practice and the experience of the pa they would see a varied workload from chronic condition management, mm -hmm. so diabetes mm -hmm. and your thyroid issues and like aging population issues. And then they would also have like acute clinics where people would come in with acute problems. So abdominal pains or sore throats, we're not sure what's going on. Um, and you will basically examine the patient, take a history from them, work out what you think the most likely cause is. Um, and then usually what happens is that you'll see five or six patients. Yeah. And then there'll be a blocked out time where you'll consult with your GP about the cases you've seen yeah. and you'll go through the cases. And if the GP wants to ask any further questions or any issues or actually I think we should do this then you can obviously bring the patient back up. Yeah. Um, and of course, the GP is accessible all the time. So if you're with a patient actually yeah. think I need some help. Yeah. It's an open door policy. You go to your GP supervisor and you say, I've got this patient. This is what I'm thinking, but actually like quite like some advice or some help. And the yeah. GP is able to give you advice from there. 
And can I just clarify, just maybe for our listeners out there who don't realise that actually all, not all the time a patient needs to be seen by a GP. A lot of the times when we're in medical school, we also do those similar types of consultations. So we'll sit there, usually for even longer than the PA gets to. It's about 30, 40 minutes. You sit with the patient, you ask them lots of different questions. And actually the opportunity for the patient is that they have a lot of time to spend with you. And actually it is safe because you are able to go back to the MGP and tell them what's going on. And secondly, you would have had read up on all of their notes before you saw the patient. So you'd had a lot more time and a lot more investment in seeing that patient than the GP you potentially might have had. So actually, it's not an unsafe thing to happen. I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. yeah. And there's been quite a few studies come out, um, particularly from general practice point of view, not so much from secondary care yet, but that PAs offer the same level of care that mm. a GP would as long as they're working under supervision. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you a few things. Um, firstly... Um, semantics. Let's clarify. <laughs> Let's clarify. Physician's associate, physician's assistant, and you said something else as well when we were... Uh, physician's chatting. assistant anesthesia. Okay, so yeah. PA, PA, PAA? Yeah. Right, so, break it down. So back obviously we brought the role over from America and we were called physician's assistants and that was the name we were rolling with. Fine. Um, and then obviously as the profession started to expand a bit and more PAs become more popular... Obviously, we sought statutory regulation under the GMC or the HCPC or someone that can give us some statutory rights. Yeah. Um, And as part of that, one of the things that was brought up amongst many was that the fact that the NHS already had a role called physician's assistant. And these were um, members of staff that didn't have any particular medical training, but Mm -hmm. they were able to carry out things like bloods, cannulas, ABGs, catheters, and kind of free up the junior doctor's workload from the procedural tasks if they were busy. Yeah. Um, And also become very skilled in doing things. If you've got a difficult patient with a difficult catheter, that, you know, the nurse or doctor can't get in, they've done them hundreds of times. Um, and so the government was, one of the things they brought up was that there's going to be confusion. If we regulate physician's assistants, no one's going to know, was this person that does catheters or someone that can treat me? Yeah. And they wanted a clarification. So the role was moved to physician's associate, which exists in the U states and a couple of programs. So it wasn't a new thing, but it's not widespread. Mm-hmm. So that's the change of name. Okay. Physician's assistants still exist. They're being termed clinical assistants or medical assistants. Oh, fine. To try and make them their own identity and they're yeah. very important to the NHS. So um, important. Yeah, so yeah, important, definitely. yeah. Um, and it's just to try and make sure that roles are not confused. And then we obviously have physician's assistants in anesthesia. And these are usually um, healthcare professionals, but can be biomedical scientists that go into direct training. They do a complete two-year programs only at the, in Birmingham, I believe. And then they work under the supervision of a consultant anaesthetist um, so that you have one anaesthetist and then probably one theatre being run by a PAA and one being run by a trainee. And the idea oh, is wow. that the PAA has been trained in certain procedures, certain ASA grades, they can cover things. Yeah. And therefore the consultant can spend time training the trainee anaesthetist, yeah. knowing that they've got someone next door that knows the problems. And, and it's competent. More, and it's competent to carry out, you know, uh, to their competence and knows that if it's without their competence to immediately seek help. That's great. Yeah, that is. And it's crazy to think that there was so much controversy around the role as well. Because I remember, so this takes me back to my knowledge about PAs and what the role has been from the US to the UK. So I used to do a lot of work with the BMA as part of the Medical Students Committee during my time in medical school, I think, towards my final years. Anyway, I remember we received a lot of documents um, at the time asking us for our consultation and what the role of PA should be within hospitals and whether we had any concerns as medical students and soon-to-be junior doctors. And I remember reading it through it at the time, and I think at face value, when actually a lot of your concerns as a medical student 
sorry, as a committee member working for medical students is, are we as medical students getting enough training opportunities um, and are we supported well by other junior doctors when we enter those hospitals? And at that time, for various reasons, I feel as though we felt that we weren't getting the best opportunities that we could get. Now, that can be attributed to so many different things, but I think just getting that document at the time, it made us slightly concerned and made us have our ears up what's that our hackles <laughs> our hackles were raised our hackles were raised i've never used that term <laughs> um and it just made us a little bit concerned that there was this like big group of people who were specialists and postgraduate and coming in and taking all our opportunities away from us but since working with pas i know that is not the case and it's actually very different so it's funny to be on this side of conversation now rather than than what my initial perceptions were yeah. yeah, because I mean, uh, just to touch on that, like, absolutely, if imagine as a junior doctor, you've got all these um, sort of scans to vet or things to do, like little little bits and bobs that if someone else is helping you do those, you actually have more time to sit down with your med student and take them through, okay, what's the best way to manage your ward round? Yeah. Or, okay, they want to see an interesting patient. You can go with them, watch them examine, do their, you know, their like mini kexes and all those little bits. And actually things that you, the only reason you generally don't get to do them is because you stretch for time yeah, and you're and like, sorry, you've got to follow me to the radiology department and we can quickly chat as I, um, you know, get this done. And then, oh, we're going to the lab and, you know, and it's like in the corridors that you're quickly having hurried chats about things. It's funny you should say that because when I was showing one of the new F1s around, the one who's about to become an F1, yeah. we were so busy that day and there was literally no time to teach her. And I felt so bad because I couldn't show her how to do discharge summaries or mm. show her around the ward, introduce her to new people. Mm. But ha had I had someone there who was just as competent as I am to manage a lot of the problems on the ward, mm. then I would have been able to take her around and show her the job and be able to train her better. So actually having PAs there is supportive to the role and I've never ever seen them detract from the role, genuinely, never. No. Yeah, I mean, I would yeah echo that. Like from our ward, we have um, two CT trainees and then two F3 equivalent trust grade doctors um, for six months, and we treat them no differently. You know, CMTs and the trust grades need equal training. Um, so when they just started last week, and like I've known a lot of our patients for the last twelve months. Of course, you know I know them all. I know what problems they've come in with in the past. What weird and wonderful fungal infections they've picked up off a mm. transplant, and <laughs> why they're on this antibiotic and not that antibiotic, yeah. and um, and obviously when the new SHOs come in and they're like, oh, you know, should. What, what's wrong with this person? Why are we giving this drug? I'm like, oh, because I have this, this, and this, and this is the problem we're doing with now. Mm. Um, and other things like procedure-wise, like before I started, the, the SHOs wouldn't really get to do like bone marrow procedures. Mm. So when I do bone marrow biopsies, they might see a couple, but they never be able to do one. Mm. And now that I'm competent in doing them with remote supervision, mm. um, I can get on with one, bring them with me, they can see some with me, and then the next time the reg can take them and they can do one with the registrar supervising. Super, how good is that? It's so good. <laughs> um, so we've spoken a lot about the benefits for doctors um, and I wanted to carry on from what you said about that you've been, you know, you're competent in doing bone marrow um, biopsies and things now. So what's the progression for a PA? So for someone who's interested in doing um, physician associate studies, I mean, obviously you're like selling the dream to yeah. us guys, <laughs> but what about people that want to start it? Because yeah. I've got a cousin actually who was asking me about this and I was like, I'll put you in touch with Jamie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's, a, it's a big topic. Like a lot of PA students want to know, okay, well, you're qualified and you're completely, yes, you're qualified, but what comes next? And mm. it's a big thing that people are worried about. Um, and it depends on, in my opinion, it depends on the kind of person you are. 
Mm. So I'm working within hematology. Um, obviously, I'm not an expert in hematology yet. You know, I can manage the most common malignant issues on the ward, mm. but I'm still learning, you know, general medicine. I have a good general background for my training, but, you know, it comes to a point. And for me, my progression at the moment is learning more about general medicine. So renal, you know, cardio, how do you manage other complex problems within hematology patients? Yeah. Yeah, expanding my examination, you know, diagnostic skills, yeah. um, procedure-wise, you know, bone marrow biopsies for now, and then pick lines in the future. Um, and then I'm kind of being on the side, like right, doing some protocols for the juniors when they come in. It's really obvious that if they're on this chemotherapy protocol, on day one they'll do this. At day five, we expect this to happen to their bloods. This antimetic needs to be given. So kind of going towards more of a supportive educational role. Yeah. Um, and then policy writing alongside other people. Yeah. Um, with other seniors. So, you yeah. know, I, I don't think there's like a set career for the future, yeah. but there's options and different avenues you can take to kind of build your own pathway, which is another ma massive thing for PA for me is that there wasn't a defined future. Yeah. I can basically make my own future. It's clear that you have to be quite self-directed as a PA. It's not as easy as actually going through a training program like us, yeah. where you know that you'll go into foundation training, then CMT training, and mm. then become a registrar. Mm. Actually, it sounds like a lot more that you have to be self-directed yeah, and, and you have to pave your pick part. what you're doing. There's, there's nothing paid for me. Obviously, my consultants have got a plan they would like to get us in malignant heme, do some sickle cell, do some general hematology. Mm. But then after that, they're kind of like, well, we'll see how it goes and what your interests lie and you know what the service needs. Yeah. Um, and that's perfect for me because, you know, the few, I don't want to know that next month I'm just going to be doing this and that's it. It's quite nice to know some flexibility and we're still going to make our plan as we go along. And with um, the degree, it's a master's, isn't it? So you have to do an undergraduate degree first and then you do two years. So, yeah, so it's so you have to have an undergrad in science or healthcare. Yeah. Um, and Can you tell us what other people had and what you have? So the most that? common entry route is biomedical science or like mm. a biology chemistry degree. Mm. Then it's allied health professionals, so nurses, radiographers, paramedics. Mm. Um, I had a friend of my program that was an ODP that wanted to retrain. Mm. Um they have some people that have had psychology degrees, have had to prove and they've had scientific modules within that, or they've had to do extra modules to prove they've got the scientific capabilities. Um, so you do your undergrad and then you decide you want to be a PA and then you apply to a PA program. And initially, a lot of programs are postgrad diplomas. Yeah. They're still two years. Um, and my program happened to be a master's, which was two years and three months. So you're two years of PG dip training to be a PA. Yeah. And then you do the extra master's part, which is your dissertation and research project to get the master's. Okay, fine, fine. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, I kind of want to, when you were telling me a lot about physicians' associate roles in GP, it was, for me, just like really making me think of like EMPs and A&E and how um, similar the job role is. And I know that there's, we've spoken a lot about, say, um, doctors being worried about how a PA role is going to affect their job. How about people like EMPs? Yeah, Are they like trying to fight you guys? It doesn't, I don't like the word fight. There's some, uh, <laughs> there's some EMPs, sit de- down. debating yeah. between lots of professionals. So obviously there's, there's the ANP slash ACP route. And yeah. there's been lots of discussions between PAs. Can we just PAs. extend these mnemonics, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, um, advanced nurse practitioner is probably the more traditional term everyone's aware of. Mm. Uh, and then our rebranding or the name is becoming advanced clinical practitioner to include allied health professionals. So physiotherapists that want to, you know, become specialists and practice um, in an advanced role. They're encompassing one unit, so advanced clinical practitioner. Um, And like you said, ANPs, ENPs, emergency practitioners, they are, I like to describe them as specialists in their field. They know that field inside out. If you've got a cardiology ANP, that ANP will know cardiology inside out, will know all the protocols, how things run, how to manage. You know, if a STEMI comes to the door, they will know from this to diagnosis to management, they will know inside out. And they'll know their department amazingly. They will know everything inside out. Um, And people will say, well, we'll just get more ANPs. What what are PAs add compared Mm. to them? Mm. And for me, is that we're we're a generalist medical person. We're not a specialist. We don't specialize, Mm. unlike the ANPs. We're just general medics that happen to work within a speciality team that will gain speciality knowledge but every six years, we resit all of our general medical exams. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I saw that actually in my reading. Can I ask, so initially I saw that there's a voluntary register that you guys yeah. sign up to. So Why is it voluntary also? So the government have been stalling on statutory regulation. PAs have been asking for it for years. There's a consultation just gone through government to ask for the GMC or the health HCPC, which is Health and Care Professions Council, should take over the management of regulating PAs. It's, we're closed last November. We're still awaiting an outcome. Okay. Um, What's the general feeling or thoughts? Most PAs want to go under GMC because yeah. we work under a consultant supervision. So okay. there'll be clear lines of accountability from okay. the same regulator. But it's up in the air still. Would there be an option of going under a different regulator or would it just be an independent regulator they're looking for as uh, well? So the government actually wants to reduce the number of regulators. So it's probably not going to... We're going to create our own one. Yeah. Um, mm. I'm surprised that you're running into roadblocks about it because I think it's such a... It's like a necessary thing. And I think um, even from our questions um, from listeners, the concerns, well, I say concerns, but the query really was, what about regulation? Um, and it's a natural question, isn't it? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, PAs work under a super consultant supervision, yeah. someone or GP. Um, pretty much no one, no con- hospital in the country will employ you unless you're on the PA managed voluntary register, <laughs> which is governed by the Royal College of Physicians. So you have to sit a national exam. It's, it's very set by the RCP. OSCE is written examination. It sets your safety to practice at qualification. Um, and that basically gives you as doctors some alleviating from your concerns that if I do something, it falls to me because I am voluntary registered. The yeah. ultimate responsibility falls to the consultant. The same with you guys. If you see a yeah. patient make a diagnosis, the consultant is still responsible overall, yeah. but you're responsible for your individual actions. And yeah. the way that PAs particularly see it is that if I see someone listen to their chest and hear a murmur and I action an event, 
that's on me because I've said I'm trained to examine a patient and know what to listen for. Yeah. And so that falls to me because I've met the set standards. Yeah. Problem is, it's not in law yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it, but it's in process. It's in the, hopefully in the process. Yeah, fingers we'll crossed. Find out soon. <laughs> yeah, and I think that shows us that we need to start looking at PAs as individuals here because they all bring a very different background each yeah. and they all contribute to different specialties and different services in their own specific, unique ways. And actually, it sounds like it's the consultants here who are kind of creating the roles for the PAs, mm. looking at what they like skills they offer and actually... Even the fact that Jamie's able to contribute to guidelines and also create packs for new doctors to come and learn from, that's so important and that's so useful. So I can only see it as really improving our service just generally. So we really should start standing behind PAs and working with them to improve the service because there's so many limitations to to what we can do. So it's funny, like when I look at a lot of the F1s who currently work with us, they've always had the experience of having PAs around. Now, our PAs are physician's assistants, not associates. But just the fact that our physician assistants are very well skilled in doing bloods, cannulas, getting our scans organized, speaking to patients for certain things, liaising with the nurses, just getting things done in the hospital, it just frees up so much time. Yeah. Like the amount of time that I spent in our first hospital compared to this hospital. <laughs> Seriously. <is> so <laughs> It's so different. And that's just because I didn't have someone to help with my service provision. Yeah. And, and then it's things like little things like um, patients come in with chemotherapy, they're neutropenic or something. Mm. You're busy on the ward. I happen to be seeing the patient with the physician associate. You know that they're able to stabilize that patient yeah. pending a doctor review. Um, which means that you haven't got to worry that, okay, I've got this really sick patient on the ward and someone coming in. I need to better see both of them. I don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, after working with me for a few weeks, hopefully you'll trust that, okay, this guy knows how to manage a neutropenic sepsis. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because, like, if I was working with you rather than, like, a one-week-old F1, I know that I could just, like, leave you to get on with that neutropenic sepsis, whereas with the new F1, I might just be popping in, seeing what they're doing, because actually a lot of our workers experience and it's knowledge that you gain after working with a certain team. And there is no way that the new F1s and the new CMTs are going to know more about the specialty than a PA who's been working there for 12 months. And even practical stuff, like Mm. where the heck are the blood culture bottles? Because that is... I feel like sometimes you need like a signposted arrow to find them because they're always tucked away in some cupboard under the stairs. <laughs> so with a oh, PA where, knows. Where do you find a, a blood gas machine? Oh yeah. my How God, do you get tell there me. It yeah. took me ages to find them in our last hospital. The honestly. 10 layers of security to get into the blood gas room. <laughs> yeah. Like, my God. Um, but also, can I play devil's advocate here? Go ahead. And say, I completely agree that mm-hmm. in our current, you know, well, in our in our um, hospital last year where we had physician assistants, it was <laughs> I know dream- what she's going to say. You know what I'm going to say. It was dreamy to mm-hmm. not have to like, on the ward round, if you're, if the nurse is like, oh, the cannula's tissued. And then the, you know, the PA is just like, that's right, I'll do it. And oh, this, yeah, yeah, I'll redo the bloods. Oh yeah, can you leave out the blood? Yeah, I'll do that. And you're just like, yeah. It's like, do yeah. I have any jobs left? <laughs> Early lunch, Costa. <laughs> um, no, not actually. But, but I was going to say, I learned my skills of like difficult cannulations mm-hmm. and difficult bloods and doing my fem stabs and my layers of escalation and like how to get a blue into this, you know, twiddly little vein on mm-hmm. someone's like tip of their thumb. 
you learn that by grafting on your night shift as an F1 but where you, do, you have to. But super, you also learn that on night shifts. So like even in the hospital that we work yeah. in currently or just finished working in, they don't have night shifts. So actually, I think we need to start thinking about what experience actually is and where do you get your experience from? I'm not sure if you get a lot of your experience from your normal day job. I think yeah. actually it might be the on-call shifts when... The True. hospital itself is quite thin on the ground yeah. and you don't have your physician's associates You around. don't have the luxury, yeah. So maybe we need to start looking at making sure there's more... <laughs> Everyone's going to hate me for this. <laughs> don't even, don't <laughs> even say it, Amelie. <laughs> but I can see how useful it is as an F1 to gain experience from night shifts and on-call shifts. I mean, I'll, I'll echo you on that and say, at the end of the day, experience will come when experience comes. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is, is that, I mean, we all know how to do a cannula. And when you are called in the hour of greatest need, whenever that comes for you, whether that's F1, F2, whether that's the CMT, you will eventually have to try and put that blue cannula mm. into the tip of someone's thumb. Yeah, but what you don't want to do is do 10 in a ward round because that's just a waste of time, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. So there's that point, bat it out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> so we've spoken about the things that you can do and the things that you're allowed to do. So can you just tell us about the things that PAs aren't able to do that clinicians might be able to do? Yeah, so currently within the regulations of the law, um, PAs are not able to request ionizing radiation. So that means x-rays and CT scans. Uh, not even you, Jason. Even me as a radio, not, previous radiographer, oh I am not entitled to request x-rays. Hold on, pause, pause, pause. So you've worked as a radiographer for four years. Yeah. As in, you can read scans, I you know, can do them the physics, yourself. The you understand. dose. Okay, stuff that you know you know a lot more than we do. You also work in malignant hematology, so you'll need these scans a lot, and I'm sure your consultants will be able to even advise you on what sort of scans. And to be honest, these are things that you know. But you, are you not even allowed to do it? No. Really? So the current law at IRMA that governs radiation states you have to be statutory regulated. And as I'm working in a role that is mm. not statutory regulated, mm. I'm not entitled to request imaging that involves radiation, ionizing radiation. You allowed to request under the supervision of someone? No. Nope. Oh, really? So the law says the, su- the request had to be submitted by someone who's statutory regulated. Would a nurse be able to? A nurse can do it. Yeah, I, yeah, so I was, was going to so say, I'm pretty sure the EMPs... Yeah, so nurses you know, are registered got, by the NMC. So, that, so as long so, as you're regulated. Yeah. So once you guys overcome that hurdle, then... Then it will be down to the local radiology departments to, to decide, decide if they will allow us to do it or not. Yeah. And in fairness, like most PAs would never request a CT scan, mm-hmm. you know, unless they've discussed it with a reg or a consultant. So actually... Nor would an F1 or an I was going to say, I was going to say, like, we're not separate entities. Everyone here is like a logical human being. And you're not going to be... <laughs> You're not going to be running around like just ordering rogue like MRIs yeah, and like... You get an MRI, you get a CT, <laughs> yes. Dexter scan for you. Like, <laughs> no, you're not going to be doing that. So, um, but I guess, you know, they've got to go through these processes. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a, as well. It's, it's yeah. not that I don't know which scans to request or when someone needs a chest x for you know, a PET scan. It's just that the law doesn't enable me to do that. So yeah. I can make recommendations as part of my plan. But unfortunately, it tends to be my SHOs that I speak to and say, could you request a chest x-ray for my patient because I <laughs> yeah. think X, Y, and Z. And sometimes I think, um, obviously these are roadblocks that are being dealt with and over mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. will evolve. But sometimes that's the frustrating side of things, yeah. isn't it? When you, you, like, you formulated a plan and so the, the contrasting difference is a doctor, if you formulate a plan, like you will carry out and you're able to carry out most of the tasks on the on your mm. job list, whatever. It's frustrating to sort of see a patient and know you need to do this, but then have to go to someone else, someone else who 
now you're then relying on your relationship with them. It is very relationship dependent. Obviously, if you've been with, if you've worked with someone for like four months and you know them very well, even mm-hmm. two months, you've worked with them a lot, you trust them, they come to you and they say, oh, um, you know, c- could you put me a chest x-ray? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they don't even necessarily need to start the spiel of because of X, Y, and Z, because you've gone through that 10 times already in your relationship, your relationship. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, if that's your first time meeting this new doctor on the ward he's already a bit like oh my god where am i what's going on and this random guy is coming up to you and being like can you request me this ct scan for me yeah yeah can i get a ct head for that patient that fell and you're like but why are they on anticoagulation like and you know it's just awkward in the first week of when the shows rotate most of my week is spent trying to convince convince them that i am not this rogue person that's going to do scans unnecessarily and that actually if i'm saying the scan would probably want to get done it's because i know the consultant wants it done yeah um so that's the the biggest frustration at the moment for me is basic imaging when i know it so well um the other things pas can't do is prescribe medications Mm. um which is obviously vital to the any medical role and that you need to be able to administer medications at the right time so obviously we were discussing neutropenic sepsis and you know you have to be able to give antibiotics, fluids, things like this within a very timely fashion with these patients. Um, and I'm quite lucky in my trust in that we have electronic prescribing. So if I'm on our day unit and someone is floridly septic, I can bleep my reg quickly and say, X, Y, and Z, this patient, this patient's got this, 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 and the reg, because they've known me for six months, yeah. will be able to remotely prescribe the stuff so that the nurse staff can initiate treatment. Yeah. But it's still a delay. Yeah, there's still that minute of conversation where I've got to get someone to prescribe it for me. And imagine in a place where you don't have e-prescribing. Yeah, you've got to run around with your drug chart trying to find someone to prescribe Yeah, it. it's a pain. Um, so this is currently why PAs don't work out of hours because there are reduced staff and, you know, trying to find the F1 or F2 on call that probably has never met you before because they're just covering a shift. Yeah. It's probably not the greatest thing right no. now. So that's why PAs mainly stick to daytime working because there's a lot of the regular team around that know you. And can, and can, I, can I ask you as well, with prescribing are you guys able to do prescribing courses like nurses are or not, not? currently okay not so currently. because why is not, that uh, so you have to be currently the law only allows nurses and some specialists other health professionals so therapeutic radiographers physiotherapists podiatrists they can go on these prescribing courses because the law has been changed to allow them and recently paramedics can now go on independent prescribing courses they can prescribe. but they're only able to prescribe certain medications so they can they can prescribe anything from the bnf that falls within their competence yeah. So, you know, if they're not competent, you know, say, let's say a paramedic has never prescribed warfarin before, you know, it's the first time, then, you know, they, they all probably seem to seek advice about how they initiate that. But once they're trained and they can do it, there's no reason why they couldn't or they can follow a guideline. Yeah. Um, because PAs are not regulated. We're not able to go on the courses yet. Okay. Interesting. But so this whole regulatory thing is like a real... It's, it's going to change the landscape. If yeah. PAs are not regulated, then I don't know where the profession will be going from there. But once that's something that's in place, it's going to expand the job role. Hopefully. Um, and just make it easier for you guys to do your job and, you know... Yeah, and support you guys. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, patients. Yeah, because yeah, I think here we're not even talking about them getting new roles. We're just kind of talking about completion of your jobs. So yeah. if you have gone to assess a patient, which a lot of PAs do go and do you'll be able to complete your jobs and then go back to whoever, just like we as junior doctors do with our seniors. Yeah. yeah. So and I always run my decisions past my reg. It might not be at the same time. I might mm-hmm. see a patient on the ward round, do everything for them, and then go back to my reg and usually at lunch, we'll go through the patients and go, I've done X, Y, and Z, this is what's wrong with them. Mm. And the reg will then either go, oh, I think we should do this as well. Have you thought about this? Or yeah, no, I completely with your plan. I'll prescribe that for you. And I can totally see where the concern lies because mm-hmm. like, even with our like roger F1s, they're, they have all these powers and they're able to do all of these things. So it is a bit concerned. It can be, 
it feels concerning to allow a group that we don't even understand their training to say, yes, you can prescribe. Yes, you can book scans because it does feel like, oh, they're, they're kind of creeping up on our job. But I did read this article, actually, and it was interesting. It was about a junior doctor who'd worked with a surgical PA for quite some time. And she was talking about how the surgical PA went to go and assess a patient and did a whole full examination and history and had a recommendations and a plan in place. But that PA wasn't able to prescribe medications, so called and asked, can I prescribe medications? And obviously her as an independent clinician, she doesn't want to just go and prescribe something just because someone's told her to. And she said, yes, I really trusted my PA and we'd worked together for so, so much time so actually he did know a lot more than I did but I always felt that I had to go read through his notes Mm. do the examination over again and do exactly the same thing that he was gonna basically put in place all his recommendations as well so she was talking about the duplication of time that was just essentially time wasted just because she had to go and re-examine the patient herself to do exactly what he was going to do and I think that boils down to like you know when we were talking about um other prescribing uh, healthcare professionals. It's obviously fine because at the end of the day, when you put your signature, it's your... You're prescribing. It's on your, yeah. it's on your sort of like professional um, recommendation. It's on you. Um, and obviously the difficulty is, is that if someone comes to you and says, can you prescribe this? Um, at the end of the day, if something, you know, was to go wrong... It's on the prescribing doctor. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people have a lot of sort of like, there's a bit of trepidation around yeah, um, just doing it. And like we and, said, and a lot I feel of it, the pressure. And a lot of it relies on your relationship yeah. and your trust. Um, and also, there's a degree of everyone's own intrinsic level of like how um, maybe nervous isn't the right word, but maybe like uh, conscientious. I don't yeah. know. I mean, Concern people like you know yeah. if you're prescribing a medication you've never seen that patient yeah you could be like okay well you know okay you want to give them bus up a lot but have you checked x y and z to yeah. make sure they don't so they can have the drug yeah uh, and as a PA whenever I approach my SHOs I'm like could you prescribe this I probably triple check the BNF the EMC the drug mm-hmm. you know to make yeah. sure because <laughs> I'm ask I'm trusting that F1 if the, yeah. the SHO sorry to to trust me yeah. and if I make a mistake that trust is gone and I don't want that F1 you know that, that junior but that's also you trouble. as a good clinic like independent clinician Jamie that's might not be everyone not everyone I think that's what people's yeah. concerns are yeah and I mean but all of that's going to be on a case-by-case basis because yeah. you know the person you work with and you develop that relationship and until you develop that relationship until you develop that relationship you are going to have a degree of like double checking and triple yeah, yeah, checking yeah. and you know he knows blah, this blah, blah. but he maybe doesn't know that so well from previous let and, me just yeah, check yeah, exactly. that or you know whatever else um oh and my friend actually who was um responding to the post that i shared from you on yeah. my instagram <laughs> she asked quite a couple of questions let me ask the first one how do you introduce yourself to patients and how do you explain who you are and do they trust you so see in hematology these are long-term patients so they need to know from day one who i am (laughs) so whenever i go to meet a patient i start off you know hey my name's jamie um welcome you know i'm one of the inpatient hematology team Um, i think it's important they recognize i'm part of their team i'm Mm -hmm. not just this rogue person and then i obviously how are you whatever then i say to them before we start let's just clarify i'm not a doctor and that's the first thing i say to them Mm -hmm. um and they kind of look at me and they go I'm a physician associate. Have you ever heard this term before? Yeah. Do you know what this means? And usually the answer is no. And then I go through, okay, I'm a physician associate. I'm not a doctor. I've worked with the doctors. I generally work with the junior doctor team. Um, I can see you, I can examine you, I can make a management plan, but I work under the supervision of a consultant. Mm-hmm. I'm not independent. What this means is that my decisions are always go through a doctor before I can action anything at the moment. Mm-hmm. 
in the future when I gain more knowledge and skills, some basic level things such as bloods, I won't have to ask for. But at the moment, I run it past the consultant. Do you have any further questions about my job? And they're like, no, thank and you so much. And they look at me really, and they're like, <laughs> I know everything now. But, um, yeah. the, uh, faculty it's so important to tell people just what's going on, isn't yeah, it? But yeah, we yeah. can learn from that as well. So next question. Yeah. Um, RPAs considered cheap labor um, because obviously they perform similar role to doctors, um, but maybe paid less. So unless you're about to correct us on that, Jamie. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I, I think the answer is in some trusts and by some medical directors, yes, they see us as a cheaper alternative to doctors. Mm. And there have been reports and, you know, we've, I've seen it with my own, you know, from hearing mm. from other people that trusts have replaced SHOs or with PAs. Mm -hmm. And the faculty PAs, the Royal College Physicians, do not advocate this. Most PAs, I would say almost 99%, would not want to work for in an SHO's position because we're not SHOs. We are an addition to the team. We supplement the team. We should not be replacing anybody. If you need an SHO, employ an SHO. Don't employ a PA. Mm -hmm. You need to want a PA to add and benefit your patients and your SHOs. Um, and we're not cheaper. We are, you know, you guys have your medical contracts. We have our agenda for change. We are band seven. That's quite a senior position. Mm -hmm. There's only nine bandings. Yeah. We're at band seven. We're not a cheaper alternative, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? And that also brings up other issues that like people, doctors say, well, you're paid more than me, but you do less than me. Um, so there's, there's swings around about from both sides, um, but we're definitely not cheaper doctors because we're not doctors. It's yeah. just, I can't put it any other way. Yeah. <laughs> so the next question is, we've touched on this slightly. So you're not governed under a governing body. So who are you accountable to? So as a member of the Physician Associate Managed Voluntary Register, I'm accountable to myself. Um, obviously, if you're on the street and you stick a needle in someone, you're also responsible for what you're doing on the street, whether mm -hmm. you're in hospital or not. Yeah, but legally as well. Legally, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and within a hospital, obviously, I'm responsible for the actions I carry out. But ultimately, I work currently under my consultant supervision. And my consultant tells me or sets my scope of practice what I can and can't do. So, But, but so if I had asked you, say that you, I've come to you and I said, I've got a patient with vomiting and I would like to give them some undowns of please. Mm -hmm. I've advised you for that advice. If you go ahead and prescribe it. Definitely. I've asked you for that advice. That's on you because I've And that's no different that. to a nurse coming to you and saying yeah. that thing. And actually, it's very interesting. When I look at your curriculum for physician associate studies, actually, it's very similar to the medical curriculum. And what we're both trained to do, I think, are to be diagnosticians. Whereas with nurses, they're meant to care for patients and follow up and carry out procedures. So we actually do have very similar mindsets mm. as physicians and physicians associates. So I think we need to really understand the training and understand the program before we start to criticize or start to even see how we can further improve it. Because, you know, if a clinical nurse specialist from palliative care came to you and said, can you prescribe a syringe driver? You probably wouldn't think twice about it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are like, well, this PA is asking me to prescribe Comox. Why, why do you think he can do that? <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it's just because- I will prescribe it if I want to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, so it's just, I think it's just learning our role and what we can, you know, mm -hmm. what our capabilities are. So thanks, Jamie. <laughs> Um, it's been really interesting to learn yeah. about the physician's associate role and from like, you know, like in a clear way, obviously, you know what you're talking about. And hopefully it's been helpful for our listeners as well. who mm. had all the questions about things. So, yeah. And I think we've definitely cleared up some of the misconceptions and the perceptions of what PAs do and 
what their role looks like. I think clearly there needs to be some sort of shift and some sort of change in the service provision in the NHS, whether that's for us looking at our role as doctors and how our job can be improved, but also how we can start to support the roles of other people within our trust. So whether that is the nurses and advanced nurse practitioners, or whether that is PAs, being either physician assistants or physician associates. We all have different roles and we mm. just need to see how we can better help and improve the service. And bridge the gaps. And I think that's a beautiful yeah. thing that physicians associates and physicians assistants as well, shout out to them, that they do is that they bridge the gaps between different specialties mm -hmm. and kind of like fill in the grooves. Yeah, and we've not even touched about the actual rotor gaps that they fill. Yeah. But um, we've lots of studies show that they've improved the rotor gaps for lots of trusts and lots of hospitals. Lots of studies also show that they improve the amount of time clinicians get to spend with their patients in dealing with things that they want to spend time on. Um, and as we even said in our experience, the amount of time you spend in hospital can drastically reduce just because you've got an assistant there to get rid of a lot of the jobs that you would have to otherwise be doing. So for me, it's really a win-win situation. Yeah. Yeah, I understand it's controversial, but I'm not entirely sure why it's this controversial. Agreed. I think it's also a win-win situation. And I just think that the only roadblocks um, that we've already spoken about is the whole regulation thing that's kind of proven to be like a real... And I think pin. once that comes, it'll be much more clearer lines of accountability. Mm. Doctors yeah. don't have that worry about who is taking responsibility. Yeah, for exactly. Because, you know, it's still up in the air. I, I can say this is how it is, but other people have completely different opinions. And... You know, it just needs regulation needs to come. So please, yeah. and lobby. you want the regulators? We want it. We want to be regulated. You know, yeah, we want, we because want that. it will expand your job role, and yeah. you know, you you feel more confident and comfortable in your role. Yes. I mean, we say that now, and then once you have the PMC, we'll be like, <laughs> <laughs> like oh God, what are they doing? <laughs> so just to finish, Jamie, can I ask what are your future plans, and where do you see your job going or your life going, just generally speaking? If you've got any interests outside of work and where you see everything going. um so i'm still really interested in german um and so <laughs> I, from... I knew you were going to talk about german <laughs> has to Germany. come up somewhere um so in november i'm starting my uh, german course at king's again not as a like a degree but just as language course yeah because um, germany has recently adopted the pa role and i would quite like in the future to be involved with how they develop the role out there so if i can speak medical german yeah you know maybe i could go out there for a year or two get the role going and show them what the uk has been up to in the same way that the netherlands it's really taken off in the Netherlands. So wow. I'd quite like to get into Germany, Austria, Switzerland. One of my messages just told me they've got surgical PAs out Amazing. there now. Okay. So that, I hope I can get into that international oh i'm so happy you asked that question yeah that's amazing so thank you so much for joining us jamie and thanks to our listeners for listening as always guys please listen please share please subscribe to our podcast also we have joined twitter finally we have so find us at after the letters and see you guys later thank you very much bye. yeah thanks guys bye, bye, -bye. Today's episode was recorded at Mare Street Market. Catch us over on www.afterthelettuce.com or forward slash after the letters on every social media network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.